again, fellow travellers, and welcome to podcast 133 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder, and at long last, a chance to bring a touch of class to You Should Have Been There, or more accurately, a touch of classes. Rob Burgess, founder and editor of the frequent flyer news site, Head for Points, is joining us to tell those of us in the cheap seats what we're missing. Hello, Rob. Hi, Simon. Hi, Mick. How are you doing? Hello, Rob, and thanks very much for joining us. And, uh, you know, this is a real chance for me to enter the distant planet of frequent business flying and all of the uh, rewards that go with it. Um, In fact, Rob, I've only just discovered what avios are. And um, for those who don't know, they are the rewards or points you clock up when you fly with British Airways. I think that's right, isn't it? So when you've got enough of them, you can take another flight like Tesco's or Sainsbury's, etc. But for flights, they're, they're a kind of currency or a sub-currency of some importance now, aren't they, Rob? Yes, it's, it's a currency, albeit not you know not a currency in the sort of standard sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a currency <laughs> with one, you know, one issuer, i.e. Uh, British Airways' parent company, and that issuer also controls what you can spend them on and what they're worth. So it's it's got about the strength of the you know Zimbabwean currency, to be honest. <laughs> but it's yeah, indeed, over the last twenty thirty years, frequent flyer miles, especially in the United States, have become a, a, a de facto currency for many people. You don't just earn them from flying. You can earn them from credit cards. A lot of businesses give them out as incentives. You know, the, the Economist offers 15, 20,000 avios sometimes for a subscription. You can convert Nectar points from Sainsbury's. Barclays offer them now with their really? premier banking account. So there's, it, it's generally seen as an attractive incentive for companies that want to attract that sort of typical sort of British Airways business class customer, normally a guy 30s to 40s decent salary probably works in london or some other professional occupation those people are quite hard to attract normally if you want to get them into your business and often waving a big pile of avios at them uh, (laughs) tends to work quite well Uh, which sort of answers my next question rob which which is are frequent flyers a different species to normal travelers and it sounds as though they very much are with that very narrow Let let me put let me put that a different way People who are very interested in frequent flyer miles tend to be a slightly different person because these are, by definition, a fairly sort of complex currency. They're fairly, you need to be a sort of fairly analytical person to really go through different reward options, work out what the best value is, work out where you're better paying cash or using miles. So it, it, it's not surprising that some of the keenest collectors are people who work as financial analysts or accountants or banks. <laughs> and or what like. sort of amounts do they clock up? And you know how, how exactly do they convert to flights? Very simply, 100,000 avios is good enough for a business class flatbed return flight to United States or Dubai. If you want to go further afield, like Asia or the west coast of the US, probably 150,000 in business class plus taxes and charges, which can be quite substantial. Now, you're picking those up in quite small quantities from cheap economy flights. I mean, if you do an economy flight to Amsterdam in a full, on a discounted ticket, you'll probably earn literally 125 avios. So that's one, eight, one eight hundredth <laughs> of a flatbed business class flight to yeah. New York. However, um, at the time we're recording this, you know, one of the major banks is offering 100,000 avios 
if you take out its bank account and its credit card at the same time. So the, the way the market has moved is that actually people who collect, unless you've got someone who's flying business class to New York once every two weeks, which I admit some bankers types do, a lot of people who collect quite serious volumes these days are getting them through credit card spend or some other partner activity. Is there any kind of conversion rate to actual real money, Rob? Oddly, oddly enough, you can there because there's this partnership with Sainsbury's which lets you convert Avios into Nectar points. So one British Airways Avios point converts into 0.6666p <laughs> of Nectar points. So you, you can, you can in theory, just do that and then go into Sainsbury's or Argus or eBay and spend them on real cash there. Um, by by spending nectar points. Well, thanks for clarifying that. And uh, Rob, I don't know if you know, but our last podcast, number 132, was about travelling in a greener way following the recent rather underwhelming climate conference, COP27. And um, if you could just bear with us for a moment, um, there was an interesting exchange Mm. of views, well, I thought, anyway, on Twitter, between our guest on that programme, Anna Hughes of Flight Free UK, uh, and listener Ben Williams about Simon's own travels. Ben tweeted, Love his work, but how does at Simon Calder justify the six million flights he goes on every year? And um, Anna, Anna Hughes of Flight Free UK, gallantly (laughs) defended you, Simon. I'm sure you saw this. Please don't be cynical. Yes, Simon loves flying, but he also loves biking, boating, uh, training. That's going by train. I don't think I've ever seen you in a gym. And hitchhiking. And um, he's shown more support for me and Flight Free UK (laughs) than many other similar broadcasters. I have a lot of time. Time for Simon. And uh, Ben came back again with, I know his footprint is far smaller than all the people flying around on private jets daily. And I'm not being cynical. I'm just wondering what his response would be, given that he's probably been asked it loads of time. Well, over to you, Simon. What is your response to these six million flights a year you go well, on? Well, if only. Um, no. And, and thank you very much to Anna Hughes, first of all, for being our guest. And secondly, for gallantly, as you say, Mick, defending me. Well, I don't really have much defence beyond the fact that um, international travel is I think very much a force for good Um, it's a great way of transferring wealth from richer countries to poorer countries and creating jobs etc and well I suppose the only other bit of my defense which is a bit creaky is that I only ever go in economy and therefore my carbon footprint because I'm not occupying a a flat bed um, it my, my carbon footprint is not quite as disastrous as it might be Ah, but do you ever actually think about cutting down the number of flights, doing stuff on video links and all these things that you can do um, these days? No, well, it would all depend. I mean, I, uh, I've i never been one to kind of go to Frankfurt for a meeting and then come back in the same day anyway. And, um, you know, my, my job, as I would um, laughingly describe it, involves going around and um, uh, seeing what the world's like. So, uh, so no, I wouldn't. Um, uh, yes, absolutely, I go by train whenever I can. But as discussed last week... Um, if you were going, say, from Manchester to Malaga by train, it would take you two and a half weeks to organise, two and a half days to get there, but it cost you at least two and a half times more than it would um, with a Ryanair or an EasyJet flight. Anyway, uh, th- thank you for bearing with us, Rob. What, do, do you have a, a kind of offset scheme that you have or anything like that? I mean, it's an interesting question because I was literally just talking to my wife half an hour ago about a trip to Scotland we're doing over New Year. 
and whether we should take the train or the um, or the plane. And you know, the, the sheer logistics of it mean was where we're going. Mean that you know the train would be unbelievably difficult. It's, I mean, like like you, Simon. I travel. You know, I travel for my job. I also, to be fair take a lot of holidays because because I can um, because I want to show my kids the world while they're still at home and still young and I've got the opportunity to do so. I, I tend to look at it two ways. First, I tend to look at my general climate footprint, which is I live in a terraced house in London. We have never, ever had a car. You know, I take the tube everywhere, walk where I can. My general f- footprint, apart from the flying I do, is virtually nil. And, you know, I, I've, I've had lectures on climate from people who, who I know have free cars in their household. So you, you have to think about, you know, where this all balances out. Yeah. Business, cl- business class versus economy, that, that's a slightly yes. Yes, that's a di- different debate. I think we'll come back onto that. But there's also a lot to be, you know, what was it very easy to sort of try and push it back on the industry. There is a lot going on, um, British Airways and like are doing a lot with sustainable aviation fuel, which is quite a hot topic now. Simon was at a conference with me the other day where this was a, a big issue. And there's no easy answer because Simon's right. You, you are, it's, it's, it's the general good of humanity. I know it sounds a bit wishy-washy, but you know, going out there, seeing the world, seeing other people live, understanding other people is a, is a key part of of how we live and actually how we all live together on the planet and it's it's not about you know, when everyone's just living in their own little silo and not getting out there not seeing how the rest of the world lives you know that's, that's led to a lot of problems in, in the past century let's be frank and it's just how you do the travel you do in an environmentally friendly way the industry is spending a fortune on next generation planes you know if you get on an a350 now it's not made out of aluminium it's generally made out of carbon fiber that's why it's got bigger windows better pressurization pressurization the current generation of aircraft engines are massively more fuel efficient and massively quieter, actually, than the generation that went before. Um, I think Virgin Atlantic's down to an average fleet age of about seven years now for its long-haul aircraft. Yeah. So there's stuff going on. It's just that it all goes on in little tiny steps and without some sort of big bang announcement, people don't really understand what's going on. But it's not impossible that the industry move to net zero by 2050 will happen. Um, sustainable aviation fuel is quite a big part of that. It, it is a very complicated argument, isn't it, actually, as we discovered last week when we were talking to Anna Hughes. And um, and it's extremely difficult to work out and to, and to, and to kind of balance um, what your personal um, allocation is, as it were. I mean, maybe what we need is um, when we're born to get a kind of mm. a whole sort of um, junk <laughs> of credits, maybe Avios. And then when we run out, mm. well, hard luck, mate. You've, <laughs> you've done it. And... Uh, Wow. And you know the other thing I was thinking, um, though, Rob, was that um, uh, when you were talking about seeing the world and taking your children to see the world, I was actually thinking maybe the normal argument that it's holiday makers who are uh, who are doing the unnecessary flying and business people who are doing uh, the uh, economically uh, necessary flying. I wonder whether we shouldn't actually turn that around completely because. Um, I must say I've had a couple of uh, uh, flight-based holidays to warmer places, the Canary Islands, uh, Tenerife, and to uh, Mallorca this year. And I just felt um, they were so important (laughs) to my uh, general well-being. And um, we 
managed to, I think, um, first of all, get away from the incredible um, um, chaos of uh, what was going on in this country and were able to see it from a bit of a vantage point and also have a break from, um, you know, the grim sort of reality and also to find out what other people were doing and also what they thought of us as well. And obviously they, uh, most people, most, most Spanish people were actually um, in hysterics over um, uh, the uh, mess we uh, were and um, probably still are making of our politics. But so I thought, sorry about that ramble, but that actually maybe it's the holiday making aspect of it that is more important than the business class and this is my question eventually um doesn't the um the uh, the rush for avios and for frequent flyer points actually encourage unnecessary business flying when actually you could do it via some kind of video link uh, and uh, but the fact that your company will pay you <coughs> to go there and the fact that you'll be able to clock up so many points you'll actually get almost a free, you know a free flight to the states on the basis of it isn't that actually uh, not a good thing for the environment i would be lying if i said people don't do that we also have to bring into this debate airline status as well well while we're mainly talking about frequent flyer miles here Parallel to that, obviously, the airlines operate their own sort of silver card, gold card schemes, which also involve the number of flights you take. So and, and in, in some ways, I think they drive it slightly more. Um, if you get to the end of the year and you are one long-haul flight short of keeping your British Airways gold card and you're faced with not having access to the first-class lounge for the next 12 months, then perhaps you might try and drive a trip. I remember back in my banking days, which is going back you know, 15 years ago now, you know, we, we had an office in Paris, which I used to go to quite a bit. And there were times, because we had a, a all business travel travel policy, there were times I would take the, I would fly there instead of taking Eurostar, purely because it was getting towards the end of the year and a business class flight would be one <laughs> yeah, no, eighth of a British Airways silver card. And, you know, I did it because I, I, I wanted to keep the lounge access and the fast track security and the like for over 12 months. So people do do that. And obviously it's a driver of business because the airlines won't do it otherwise. And of course, we would love listeners' responses to this thorny issue. Do tweet us at you should have BT, or you can leave us an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. I think what we've been doing, Rob, is talking as though there is a business class possibly a first class and an economy class. But uh, I have now realised that um, a, a new um, kid is on the block, or actually it's not really a new kid, but one that I haven't really been particularly aware of, which is something called um, premium economy. And I, I have no idea what this actually means. If you fly across the Atlantic, for example, on premium economy, uh, what do you get? Is it that much better than economy? What it's not is a midpoint between economy and business class. Wow. You know, that's the key thing to remember about premium economy. Premium economy, for those of us who are getting on a bit, is perhaps more like you know economy as you might remember it from you know, the 1980s. Um, it has been around a long time. Um, Virgin Atlantic and Eva Air, I think it was back in 1992 when they launched it. Oh. So it's yeah, it's fundamentally the sort of civilized economy as you might remember it. So it's pro- it's normally these days two four two across the aircraft rather than three, oh right four, that's three, seat sorry that's which two that... sort of do- which is now the, dom- the, the, the dominant seats yeah the dominant seat layout. So everyone would two, two four so two four two across 
um, legroom about four inches, four to five inches more legroom than you get in normal economy. You often get leather seats instead of sort of usual fabric things. Ah. You would, depending on what airline you get, the, the the main meal itself, either main the main dish will be a business class main dish with the sort of economy starter and main around it. Yeah. Proper cutlery, possibly some sort of decent amenity kit on an overnight flight. What you don't get are some of the bells and whistles of business class on the ground. So you're you're not getting uh, airport lounge access, for example. British Airways this year has started doing dedicated check-in desks for Oh, really? Virgin Atlantic has always Virgin Atlantic has always had dedicated oh. check-in desks for premium economy. On Virgin, the TV is three inches bigger than you'll find in economy, so thirteen inches versus ten inches. So it's it, it's kind of it's, it's I call it more civilized economy than business light. It's generally being sold to generally better, you know, better off people who simply don't find economy nice anymore. <laughs> now, you know, some people are okay being cramped into a very tight economy seat for 6 to 10, 12 hours. And frankly, you get to a certain age in your life or you're tall or you're wide or you've got a bit of some health issues. It's simply not, it's almost physically not possible, let alone just generally unpleasant. And if you can pay an extra £250-ish each way, then premium economy is a way to get yourself there and still feel semi-alive when you make it. It's not it's not the answer to long overnight flights, frankly, because you're not getting the flat bed, you're still not going to sleep very easily. But it does at least allow you to get there in a modicum of comfort. And for most airlines who've done it, they see it as the most profitable part of the aircraft, ah. oddly. Uh, Emirates has started rolling it out this year, Tim Clark, the Emirates CEO, who's gone on the record to say that he regrets not doing it 10 years ago because it's thrown off so much cash. Well, Rob, uh, let's, let, should we move on up into proper business class now? Um, I'm going to stay briefly in short haul because surely on many short haul airlines, the difference between economy and business has eroded to the point where actually business class isn't much better than uh, EasyJet. Um, all, all seats are the same. It is, yeah, and only if we we took a jet two flight over the summer for the first time ever, and what you find is that, is that you can basically even recreate the whole business class experience anyway. You, know, you, you can lock in the front row so you get, get the extra leg room. You can all you sort of pre-order some food so you get the similar sort of meal. And there's not a lot of difference. In truth, I mean British Airways on the aircraft itself, the middle seat is blocked. So it's two two, not three three. Although it's still the same size seats, it's got nobody nobody in the middle. Right. You'll get some sort of meal, but you know, it's it's not desperately exciting. You still get a free glass of champagne if you want one. There's not a lot in it unless you actually want the empty middle seat next to you. But to be fair, it's more about the entire package on the ground, which is priority check in, fast track security, access to the airport lounge, things like that, which just tend to make the whole journey run a bit smoother. It's, it's, I admit it's debatable if you've got a you know, British Airways silver or gold card and you already get those things, whether you'd bother um, paying for business. The other thing is bizarre is that British Airways now has something called theoretical seating, which means that it tries to keep empty seats next to gold card holders in economy. 
on short haul flights. So they they, they, they will the, the wh- wh- wherever you sit yourself on the plane, the seat map blocks the seat next to you, and no. only when the plane gets totally and yes, true that's what got for golds, yeah. And only when the plane gets totally full do those seats open up. Thanks so much for pulling back the curtain literally into uh, what's happening in business class. But who has got the very best business class? And conversely, who's got the worst? It's not that simple because most airlines these days have a large mix of long-haul aircraft, which they've bought over 20 years or so, and they don't often refit them. So bizarrely, British Airways with its new club suite product, which is a business class seat with a closing door, effectively, for a simple way of putting oh. it. That's the best seat of any airline based in Europe. I think we can say that with total So, so are you in your um, own little bubble, as it were? You've got your own little bubble. bubble. Yeah, yeah, you can go in there, shut the door, and you've got your own little bubble. I mean, the, the door's not, you know, the door's only about four feet high, so the crew can still peer over, but, you know, <laughs> it's a level of privacy you wouldn't normally get. And whilst I always give BAE quite a bit of stick in general in my writing, I have to say you know, this is an excellent product, which is better than anything else that's currently available. But yeah, you know, it's currently on about half-ish of the BA fleet. And the other half, including the A380s, has the pretty appalling old uh, Club World seat, where half seats face backwards and you're climbing over other people to get to the aisle. It's generally not great. I'm assuming, Rob, that that's um, quite awful only in context of really nice business class as opposed to uh, compare... In, to, obviously, to in the context of... Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've got this... Yeah, no, no, indeed. And as, as with all these things, you know, you, I, I've been writing about this stuff for a long time now and you, you get, it's very easy to get cynical about it and forget what other people flying at the back. In, in, in general, Qatar Airways is generally regarded as having the best business class product in the world. Um, they, have, they have a couple of different seats. But, but they have something called Q-Suite, which does have a closing door. It's the first seat in the world to have a closing door. Not all their aircraft have that. But in general, in terms of the quality of the food and the service and the way the whole operation comes together, including their lounges on the ground and the operation in Doha, you, you, you probably can't go wrong with Qatar Airways. Emirates, Etihad, again, they've also put a lot of money into quality products. Emirates has by far the world's best premium wine list. You know, it's just, I mean, what you, what you get in Emirates first class is, I mean, I, last time I did Emirates first class, they had a cognac, which I didn't actually take, and I got back home and looked it up, and it was £790 a bottle. And bizarrely, if I'd asked for one glass of it, they would have been forced to open the bottle, pour me one glass. I mean, if you know this, but they have to pour it all away when they land due to customs regulations. So they would have had to pour away, you know, 85, 90%. Luckily, so luckily I didn't ask it, didn't actually try it on the plane. So there were only two of us in first class on that day. <laughs> they, they could have sent it down the back to economy. We would have loved it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely mad. It wouldn't have got past your row, would it, Simon? Well, oh, actually, if I'd been in it. Mine. Well, Rob, I'm afraid Simon seems to have left us, I hope, temporarily. But um, I've got a question for you, if we can just carry on uh, regardless, which is... Um, um, in the heady old days of flying, when you weren't concerned about your impact on the environment, when you weren't concerned about how many points you were getting, uh, when you weren't concerned about catching COVID or something else on the flight, um, I think one of the nicest things was turning up to um, your economy flight to check in. And um, by putting on your best jacket and smiling as... <laughs> hard as you possibly could, um, trying to get an upgrade. And I remember this happened to me, 
I suppose it was three or four times. And um, what a great feeling it was. Tremendous sensation of having uh, won um, a quite a good lottery ticket. And uh, now I suspect from everything you've been saying that this is very unlikely to happen. Uh, yes, basically. It's, it's very unlikely to happen. <laughs> there are a few reasons for it. The The boring reason is that technology now makes it far easier for the airlines to control and oversee the number of tickets they're selling. But back, back when the IT was less less good, for one of a better way of putting it, you know, yeah. it, with people selling tickets in different channels, not everything being reconciled centrally, it was easier for airlines to accidentally oversell and therefore be forced to upgrade people because there's simply too many people turn up for economy flights. The technology now is better. More importantly, the the AI skills the airlines use to predict passenger volumes and the number of no-shows has got far, far better. So it's it's a lot rarer now, unless there's yeah. a switch of aircraft or something else, which means the seating configuration changes, for the airline to sell more seats for the number of people who turn up. They still, they still will oversell, but they're pretty darn good now at knowing how many they can oversell by. Uh, but the second okay. thing is that there's... There's a difference between the UK and the US in, in this scenario. In the US, they fill every premium seat. So if checking closes and there's five empty business class seats, the five most senior status cardholders in the economy get upgraded automatically, and business class goes out 100% full. That's always how it works. In the UK and Europe, there's a sense that part of the reason you pay for business is that actually the cabin probably won't be 100% full, and that makes it a nicer environment. You can get served quicker there's more chance you'll get your first choice of meal. So there's not a desire to fill every seat at the front, even if the seats are there. The airlines have also been able to use the internet to sell upgrades. Um, British Airways will occasionally, online in their Manage My Booking thing, pop up a message saying, do you want to upgrade your flight next week for on short haul? It's often 70, 80 quid. The can do is to get people out of economy so they can sell more economy seats. But it also, you know, it's all bonus money. You know, if you can make even just a few hundred pounds per flight by persuading people to upgrade who wouldn't normally do it. That, 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 that makes a serious difference when you cut it across the whole schedule. So keep that... Uh... Hello, Simon. You're, um, you're back again. While you've been away, um, Rob and I have been talking about the, uh, um, the end of that uh, lovely idea of turning up for your um, economy flight uh, with an outside chance of getting an upgrade if you put on your best suit and smiled beguilingly. But apparently no chance of that um, anymore. And um, I just wondered, seeing as we really are, I think, um, reaching the end of uh, the podcast, um, whether you had a last question for Rob. Yes, in fact, I was listening to you throughout. I was actually just nipping up uh, to use the business class lose gold-plated taps and everything else. Uh, yeah, Rob, I want to know, where is this going to end? It seems to be constant leapfrogging, trying to get better and better business class, um, charging more and more for it. Um, so where, where does it end? Business class only flights or business class with super extra premium first class? It, it just seems mad. <laughs> With doors and windows in your module and all the rest of it, <laughs> I, you, you scoff, Mick. But on Emirates now, in on the triple seven first class, the interior—it's all private cabins—and the interior seats have a video wall where they project the outside of the plane onto it. So you get the same view that you'd get if you were staring out the window and you had a window cabin. It's very, very bizarre, I have to say. God. I think. 
we are in some ways reaching peak business class. I mean, the question is, what else can you do? You've given people a seat that turns into a flat bed. You're now getting doors around the seats for that sort of full level of privacy. What can you go any further? I'm not sure you can. Partly for practical reasons, partly for you know aviation safety reasons. There's a limit to what you can let people do and the sp- and, and the space you can give them because you know, economically it stops working. Well, Rob, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, Shining some light on it. The uh, seatbelt sign has gone on. We are now uh, seeing the lights beneath us. Thank you very much indeed for bringing some class to our podcast at last. Well, I'll second that. And um, thanks very much for your peek behind the curtain, Rob. And uh, I wish you all the best with your uh, with your travels and indeed with your uh, website, Head for Points. But for now, from me, Mick Webb, and me, Simon Calder, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.